Good morning, Valley Bible Church. It's great to see you. So glad that you are here with us. Thank you for joining us on our online platform. If this is your first time tuning into one of our services, I want to thank you especially. Thank you for uh, gracing us and giving us the honor to speak into your life during this time. Thank you for giving us this time. What we've been trying to do and unpacking as a church is really walking through what we're calling the, the problem of pain and asking ourselves, how can we find comfort? How can we find comfort in our pain? How can we find a sense of peace when the storm of life is just surrounding us? We're just bombarded over and over again by different things, whether it be the stress of homeschooling or the stress of no job or a job loss or, or, or maybe it's just the stress of, 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 of being so concerned about, am I going to get sick? Am I sick? And all these different things. How can we find comfort in the midst of this chaos? How can we find comfort in the midst of our suffering? And and, and what I want to do as we close out our three-part series here is I want to ask you this question. And it may sound a little bit odd, but entertain it just for a moment, if you will. The question is this, is, is pain useful? Now, now, here's what I mean by that. Now, just follow me here a little bit here. Oftentimes, we do this. I'm sure you, you're a good friend, and, and you've sat with somebody, and a good friend or family member, and, and maybe they're grieving, and, and you're trying to console them. And so you say something like, hey, something good's going to happen out of this. But what are you doing there? You're saying this pain is somehow going to be used. It's going to be used to, for something good to come out of that. Now, now think about that for a moment. And maybe you've heard this before. Maybe going to a gym or, or maybe a coach has told you this, this, this phrase, no pain, no gain. Now think about that for a moment. No pain, no gain. What are we saying there? Are we saying the only way we get this gain, the only way we get this good is if we have pain, meaning it's necessary to have pain in order to accomplish this good. Is that how we should view the Bible's kind of understanding of pain, that God needed pain in order to cause a good? No, I don't think that's the best way to view that. That's not how the Bible kind of unpacks that for us. And we've seen this the last couple of weeks, and it's very we got to be very careful in our thinking to see that, no, the reason for pain is not found after it, but before it. Before it, God gave us a choice. God, in his wonderful mercy, created good people in a good place. And, and those good people in a good place had, had freedom, had choice. And, and, and that good gift spoiled in our hands. It went bad in our hands. We chose sin, and sin has now thrust us into this painful world. The reason for for pain happens because of what was before, a choice. Now, it is important, and you felt that impulse when you were trying to, trying to comfort that friend, that it's still good to think about outcomes, but we got to be very careful and see that God doesn't need pain to cause good, but God will use pain. He'll use pain to bring about a, a good. So us trying to focus on outcomes is a good thing. In fact, I, I remember seeing this just live in front of me at one moment when I was here at Valley Bible Church. I, I was a part of a small group, my, my wife and I, and we've always enjoyed being a part of a, a, a small group of, uh, of friends, just, just diving into God's Word together. And so we were a part of this young couples group, and some of those members are actually still here at this church. And one wonderful couple there was uh, Joel and Kelly Chan, just awesome awesome people. They volunteered on my youth staff when I was a youth pastor. I just loved them. And we were so excited as a group when they told us that they were pregnant. And, and we were cheering, and I remember it. It was awesome. And then a couple weeks happened in our group, and, and they came back to the group, and we could tell that the news 
wasn't good news. And I remember them explaining to us that the, the baby that was growing uh, wasn't growing the way that was normal, that, that there was a birth defect. And what we were told is the baby's brain wasn't fusing together correctly. The brain wasn't developing right, and it was a severe uh, kind of abnormality. It was a severe defect, and it, what it meant was is that the baby probably wasn't going to come to term. And even if the baby did come to term, if the baby was born, the, the idea of that, that child growing to, to, to even the age of two is just inconceivable. And they came to us and they told us, man, all these doctors are telling us we should abort, we should abort, we should end this child's life. But, but they did not believe that that was what God would have for them. And we supported them in that 100%. We were behind them. And, and they said, no, God has given us this great gift. And, and so in July of, uh, of 2010, baby Aubrey was born. Wonderful, beautiful little girl. And, and uh, 13 days later, July 20th, 2010, is when she died. And we were there. I remember the moment. Our small group was surrounding that hospital room. And we were there. And I remember where I was. My wife was to the right of me. And, and Kelly, uh, the mom, she was to the left of me laying in a hospital bed. And, and Joel was, was at the foot of that bed. And he was holding his daughter, holding her as, as life was leaving her. And we as a group were, were singing, if you can imagine it, singing, How Great Thou Art, singing praises to God. And I remember as we're singing, we kind of stop and there's this lull, kind of this silence and, 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 and Kelly's dad was to the right of, or the left of her and, and he's a pastor, wonderful man of God and he leaned over and he said something I'll never forget. What he said to her, what he whispered in her ears was, God does not waste a hurt and this is a big one. What was he saying there? God is going to use this. God is going to use this moment. God doesn't need it. God is not delighted in it. God is weeping with us, but God will not waste this hurt, and it's a big one. He was comforting her with the idea of God will bring about a good outcome, and that's what I want to focus on this morning. So if you're going to take down one sentence, here's what I want you to take down. The big idea for this morning is this. Very simply, that phrase given to Kelly is the same phrase I want to give to you. God does not waste a hurt. God does not waste a hurt. I want to show you that this is the clear idea that Scripture gives to us when we are dealing with our pain, that, that, that God does not waste a hurt, a single hurt. Not one single hurt in your life will be wasted. God will use it. I want to show you this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. The Apostle Paul is going to speak about some of his pain. He's going to speak about a very actually specific pain, and then he's going to broaden that out and say, this is true for this one pain, this is true for all my pain. And I think what he's going to do there for us is say, this is true for all your pain. So let me show you this is 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to read verse 1. And what we're going to try to set up here in the beginning verses is we need to see the setting, the kind of context of Paul's very specific pain. And then he's going to broaden it out. So follow with me here as we just kind of build the setting. But we're going to see that Paul's view is that God is not going to waste his hurt. He's going to use it. He doesn't, again, need it, but he will use it. Let me show you this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1, says this. I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. Now, this sounds strange way to start kind of this chapter. What is Paul doing here? 
Here's what Paul's doing. Paul is feeling like he has to defend himself. Now, you can tell by just looking down at your Bible, it says 2 Corinthians, which implies there's a 1 Corinthians. And, and Paul has given several correspondence or letters to this church in Corinth. He, he started this church. He, he saw them grow up in the faith. He put leaders in there. And then he moved to another church to try to see that church grow up. This was what Paul would did, did. He just kind of traveled around and just planted churches and watched them grow. But what happened is Paul would have to go back at times to check in on his churches. So as he's checking in on this church in Corinth, he's realizing that that he's coming in and they're not applauding him anymore. That his church is starting to believe that he's not qualified anymore. And the reason is, is because Paul will talk about these opponents, these, these enemies, if you will. You could call them false teachers. And they come in and they try to hurt Paul. And their basic line of reasoning is this. You know, Paul... He's not impressive. His life is marked by pain. His life is marked by weakness. There's no power in what he does. And they try to kind of bolster their argument by saying, look, we have these visions and we have these just miraculous supernatural experiences. Clearly, God's with us. God is not with that guy. How can an apostle of the exalted Jesus Christ be a man of great weakness? And what's happening is these opponents are starting to build some credibility with, with this church. And this church is starting to believe it. And from what we know of the church in Corinth, they were very impressed by the supernatural, the spectacular. In fact, we know in the first letter that, that they crave these kind of just large spiritual experiences. They, they love the extra, if you will. So they start to believe this. You know what? Maybe Paul doesn't know what he's talking about. Maybe the guy who started our faith is not a guy we should trust with our faith anymore. So Paul feels now he has to defend himself. He says there, I have to boast. I must go on boasting. And he says, I don't want to do this, but I feel like I have to do this. They've already made the ring and they've put the opponent in and they've thrust me in. I've got a box now. Now here's what Paul's going to do. Is he's almost going to play their game a little bit. He's going to boast, but then he's going to back off of it. And he's going to boast in something that they would not expect. He's going to boast in weakness. But first, let's look at what he gives as a sign of, of strength, kind of fighting on their own terms. Look at the experience he gives. This is in verse 1, halfway through. It says this, I will go on to visions, to revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up into the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which men may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weakness. So Paul kind of gives this description of this, this miraculous experience. An experience, it says, of going up, being caught up to the third heaven. Now, what does that mean? Probably what it means is, and it's hard to, to, to kind of find the detail because Paul doesn't give us everything here, but probably what Paul is talking about was a, kind of a Jewish understanding of the heavens. Think of it like this. You would think of like the sky where the clouds are, and then you think of the stars where the planets are, and then you would think of the highest heaven would be like that supernatural realm where God exists. Paul could also just be saying, no, it's the highest heaven, meaning the most intimate part of heaven. 
Which would make sense because the next word he uses, it says this, this, this man went to the third heaven. He went to paradise. Now, that's a very unique way to describe this experience. I think what he's saying here is this third heaven, this paradise, is the most intimate place of heaven. Because the innermost parts where God dwells in his most radiant and holy and glorifying way. And Jesus uses the same terminology when he, he's speaking to the thief on the cross. And he says to the thief right before he dies and right before he dies, he says, you're going to be with me in paradise. That same word. The place where Jesus dwells, that is paradise. The same language is used in the last book of the Bible. When it describes the dwelling place of God, it says paradise. So what, what's happening to this man? This man is going to the innermost parts of heaven. And he is there, and he's hearing things, and he is seeing things. But these things he cannot share. Not that he doesn't recall them, or he has a bad memory, or he can't understand them, or he had a blurred vision. That's not the idea. The idea is he should not say them. Meaning there's almost kind of a, a moral imperative, don't speak. Don't say this. Now let's think for a moment. Because why would Paul use this experience about somebody else? If Paul's trying to defend himself, why mention some other guy? Why mention a random experience from somebody else when you're trying to defend yourself? Here's what Paul's doing. Paul's using kind of a literary device here. He's speaking in the third person. Like if, if I were to say, well, well, Pastor Paul doesn't like that. Well, I'm talking about myself as if I'm not myself. Right? I'm talking in that kind of third person way. This is what Paul's doing. It's clear. Like just jump down to verse 7. We'll see this. Paul is talking about his experience. Look at verse, sorry, verse 7. So to keep me from boasting, becoming conceited because of this surpassing greatness of the revelations. Do you see that? Paul's saying to keep me from boasting. About what? About this, about my experience. So Paul is saying, I had this experience, this, this just supernatural experience. I went to the innermost parts of heaven. Now, now stop here for a moment. Think about what Paul has done there. Paul has played the ultimate trump card. <laughs> I mean, if, if, if he has to defend himself against opponents who are saying, hey, we have this miraculous power that we've seen on display. God has chosen us to just display great spiritual strength. What did Paul just do? Paul said, okay, May, okay, you have a vision. That's nice. Okay, you have a revelation. That's nice. I've had those too. We know Paul has had several revelations, not just this one. But he picks this one up and he says, you know what? I went to the innermost parts of heaven. There are very few people in the Bible that have experienced heaven in that way. Paul would put himself at the top of the top. Basically what he's doing is he's saying, I outrank all of you guys. You think you guys are impressive? I outrank you. I've had this experience that only few have had. But notice what Paul does with this. He kind of enters on their playground, but he says, you know what? I'm not going to tell you all the facts. In fact, I should not do that. He just kind of lays it out there and leaves it. He doesn't really use it. He says, when I want to show strength, when I want to show that God is showing off in my life, if I want to show that God is really blessing my life, I'm not going to do it by these displays of power. I'm going to do it by highlighting my weakness. How counterintuitive. And this is where we get to that pain. He says, when I want to show that God 
is over my life showing off, I'll show you my weakness. That's what I'll put on display. Look at how Paul says that. He moves on from this vision. We're going to read verse 6. It says, though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it, so that no one may think of me more or more of me than he sees in me or hears in me. Again, Paul's retreating. He's humble here. I don't want to boast. Look, verse 7. This is when he brings up his weakness. So to keep me from boasting or becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness. Paul wants to boast of weakness. So what does he do? He says, let me, let me, let me give you one of my pains. Let me give you one of my weaknesses. And here's the remarkable nature of what he gives us. He, he, he picks this specific one. It says it's a thorn in his flesh, verse 7. What is that? Well, he doesn't give us everything, but I think the best explanation, the best reading of our text is it's a thorn in the flesh, meaning it's something physical. It's in his flesh, not literally a thorn in his flesh, but some physical ailment, some, some, some physical weakness, which makes sense from the rest of what we know of Paul. Paul was a man who was physically abused at times, so having, uh, uh, some lasting kind of uh, consequences from that would make sense. Paul mentions in the book of Galatians that to that church, his physical uh, limitations and weaknesses were a burden to them. So this fits. Something about Paul is weak, physically weak. Now, notice this. He mentions this one event, this thorn in the flesh. But what he does with this one event is he says this one event has two authors. There are two people behind it. And these two people have two intentions, two different intentions. There's one event, two authors, Two intentions. Right, look at this in verse 7. This is where I want to spend a good amount of our time here. Look at what he says, first part of the verse. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of this revelation, I was given a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. Okay, the first clue that there's an author here. Another author is in that first part and second part. He says, this was given to me. Why? This was used to keep me from becoming conceited, to keep me humble, to keep me from pride. Now, now stop. Who would that be? What author would be behind that kind of intention? What author would say, I don't want you to be prideful. I, don't, I, I want you to be humble. He mentioned Satan, but is that Satan's agenda for you? Do you think Satan has ever looked at you and thought, man... He's, man, what can we do? He's so humble. I love it. Let's keep him. I, in fact, I'm worried about his pride. I, he feels a little arrogant. I can't have him be prideful. I can't have him be arrogant. I can't have him feel that he, he just is a man of his own strength. No, that's exactly what Satan would want you to feel. He'd want to bolster your pride, lift you up, make you arrogant. Who's the person who wants us to be humble? Who's the person who doesn't want us to be conceited? Who's the person who wants us to stay away from pride? It's our Heavenly Father. 
This is what God wants. So Paul is saying, God has an intention here to keep me humble. There's an author behind this pain, and he wants to use it to help me, to help me not be conceited, to help me to continue to be humble, to not be boastful, to not be proud. That would damage the gospel. An arrogant preacher, an arrogant and prideful pastor, a a, a man of great ego who tries to give the gospel only hinders it, does not advance it. And Paul says, this is not what God wants. God used this pain to make me humble. But notice the second author, right? Sandwiched in between the middle of that verse. God does not want me to be conceited. God wants me to be humble. God does not want me to be conceited. He then says in the middle, but there's another author here behind this pain. And look at who it is. Right in the middle of our verse, it says, a thorn was given me in the flesh, this pain, a messenger of Satan to harass me. Who's the author? Satan. It says, why has Satan been allowed to kind of put this thorn in his flesh? It says to harass him. Now, this is a very actually strong term. And harass, we would might think of like, you know, you cut somebody off on the freeway and you say some words. That's harassment. But that's not the imagery here. The imagery here is kind of a, a physical humiliation. It's, it's doing violence against somebody to shame them. This is the same word used when Jesus was beaten before his crucifixion. Think of it now like, a, like it'd be like a slap across the face. The idea is it's not only painful, it's humiliating. It's degrading. This is what Satan is intending to do with this pain. Do you see that? One event, this painful moment, two authors, God and Satan, two totally different intentions. Satan wants to hurt. God wants to help. Satan is hoping to destroy. God is hoping to build character. This is how we should view our lives. This is something we cannot miss. Oftentimes when we deal with pain or we deal with even prosperity, we'll put God behind our prosperity and we'll put Satan behind our pain. And we try to live in this dualistic kind of universe that we thank God for all the good and we just hate Satan for all the pain. But that's not a biblical worldview. That's not the worldview of the Bible. The Bible paints a totally different picture that God doesn't have just control over some events, but all events, that God stands behind all things. Now, in different ways, he stands behind the good and the bad, but he stands behind all things. Paul sees this. God was behind this pain. God didn't need it to produce humility. Surely God can use anything to do that, but he's going to use this pain. He's not going to waste this pain. And Paul says, God, use this in me, even though Satan was trying to hurt me. Now, just think for a moment how frustrating that has to be for Satan. I mean, think about it. Satan is hoping to strike Paul, and all he's doing is sharpening Paul. He's seeking to wound Paul, and all he's doing is making him a greater weapon against him. That his pitfall is becoming his strength. His weakness is becoming power. His wound is becoming a weapon. God has totally, ironically, turned this thing on ahead. That every time Satan seeks to advance, he's only adding to his demise. How frustrating if you're Satan. 
but how encouraging for us. God does not waste this hurt. But Paul's going to broaden this out. He's going to take this point and say, it's not just this hurt, it's all of it. Look at Paul's response to this. It says in verse 8, it says, three times I pleaded with the Lord. Again, he's seeing God's control here. This isn't out of God's control. God's behind this, so he prays to God. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. I think it's interesting how he prays three times, three requests. God, will you take away this pain? I have to believe that that Paul is connecting this idea of praying three times for pain to be released, he's thinking of Jesus. This is Jesus' posture in the prayer at the Garden of Gethsemane before his crucifixion. Jesus prays three times. God, remove this pain from me. God, remove this pain. Father, Father, remove this pain from me. And both times, the answer is no. But just as the Father gave the Son strength to endure that great pain, so too God gives Paul the strength to endure And how did God use the crucifixion? For our redemption. A clear sign that this is how God moves. Even though the Romans meant it as murder. Even though the Jewish leaders meant to kill Jesus. And all of those things are accurate descriptions of what happened in the crucifixion. But at the same time, God stood behind that event, wonderfully behind that event. And what he saw it as, and what he treated it as, and he acted as if it was a sacrifice for our redemption. It wasn't a loss, but a gain. This is the same God that Paul is unpacking for us. He says, it's working for my advantage. God is keeping me in this weak moment. Why? To show off his strength. To show off his power. Think of this argument that he's just turned on his kind of opponents, his enemies, and his, his, really, his church. See, guys, you want to know power? You want to see God showing off in my life? You want to know when God really flexes on my life? It's when I'm weak. It's when I'm weak. That is when power is on display. And Paul loves to see that. Look at what he says again, verse, halfway through verse 9. says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with all weakness, insult, hardship, persecution, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Notice verse 10. You see what he did there? He just broadened it out. Not just this one moment of pain. It's not just my pain. It's not just the crucifixion. He says, all of it, man. All of my insults, all of my hardships, all of my persecutions, all of my calamities, all of my pain is used by God. God does not waste a single hurt. But he is present And he is powerful, and he uses my weakness as a stage for his great strength. Notice the term that Paul uses. Jump back up in verse 9. I think this is incredibly powerful here. He says this, but, but I said, or he said, this is God the Father answering the prayer. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness. Here it is right here that the power of Christ may rest upon me, may rest upon me. 
Now, to us as, as kind of 21st century English readers, we, we read that and, and kind of glance over it, that, that idea of this power is resting on me. But this is a deeply meaningful imagery here that Paul is picking up on. This idea is the same word used to, to make a tent or a dwelling, to, to coincide with somebody. To, to, the, to the average Jewish reader, this would bring back their history. In the Old Testament, that's the stuff written before the birth of Jesus. In the Old Testament, God wanted to be with his people. And he told them that. He says, I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. And I don't want to be a God who's distant and far away. I want to be a God who is near, present, and ever with you. So he says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to design this, this tent, this what Moses would call in the book of Exodus, the tabernacle. It's a fancy way to say tent. He says, I'm going to make my tent with you. I'm going to dwell with you. And the, my presence will be displayed. Not that it can be contained, but I'm going to be with you. This is the same language used here. A Jewish reader would say, no, we know this God. This is the God who was with our, with our fathers, our ancestors. He was with us through Egypt. He was with us all the way to the promised land. He dwelt with us. He made his tent with us. John, in his first chapter of his gospel, says that Jesus Christ dwelt with us in flesh. He made his tent in flesh. When God became man, when the Son of God became the God-man, he was making his tent with us. Just as intimately dwelling as Christ was with the disciples, this is what he's saying here. This presence is that powerful. Is, is that real? Is that relatable? The same language is used at the very end of the Bible. In the book of Revelation, it says that when there's the new heavens and new earth, it says God will dwell, just like this, dwell with his people. He's making his tent with his people. So what is he saying? How should we read this? Again, Paul said to this specific pain, but he broadened it out to all of our pain. What does that mean? God is with you in your pain. God is right there beside you. Christ is right there beside you. He is crying with you. He is weeping with you. He is holding you. And he is whispering in your ear, I will not waste this hurt. I will not waste this pain. I will use this. This is not what I wanted. When I created this world, I put good people in a good place, and it was going to be good, but it got spoiled. This is not what I wanted. I didn't want all this hurt, but I will use all of this hurt for my glory and for your good. God in your pain says the same thing that Kelly's dad said to her in probably her deepest pain. I will not waste this moment. I will not waste this hurt. And friend, this is true for you. God will not waste this hurt. He will not. He didn't waste it for Joel or for Kelly. I talked to him earlier this week. It was a wonderful conversation just to catch up on what's going on in their life, the ministry that they're doing, how they, their kids now are, are growing and and, and we shared just different things, and it was a pleasant conversation, and, and, and it was so, so enriching. I mean, we, we cried a little bit, right, just remembering Aubrey's story, um, recalling that moment in the hospital, 
But then Kelly really started to unpack for me these stories of how God has not wasted that hurt. And, and I knew some of the stories, but then she started to unpack these new ones I hadn't heard before. And we've talked about this moment uh, several times. And she said, you're not going to believe some of these new stories that have come out. That yes, God ha- has used, and they created this group called Team Aubrey, and it's, it's used as prayerful support for, for couples who are facing just, just really hard situations with their, with their, with their babies or, or those that are not yet even born with their children, whether it be a severe birth defect or some sort of ailment or something like that, or even miscarriages and those things. God has used them in amazing ways. But they shared, she shared actually several stories, several stories in which couples were faced with, with medical advice like they got. That because of a severe birth defect in the womb, that these parents should abort the child. And, and these parents, and there are several of them, came across the story, Joel and Kelly and Aubrey's story. And, and they, 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 they kind of read the story and went through it and watched the videos and all those different things, and they made the decision to keep that child. And Kelly shared with me that some of these babies who are going to be aborted are now kids who live a very normal life after a couple surgeries. Think about that. God did not waste their hurt. God did not need that hurt. God did not need that pain. But God used it. And used it to do what? Used it to save the lives of other kids. Wow. God does not waste our hurts. God will not waste your hurt. God will not waste this virus. God will not waste your job loss. God will not fear. God will not waste your foreclosure. God will not waste your diagnosis. God will not waste this quarantine. God will not waste this moment. He will make you better and he will bring it to his glory. God will not waste this hurt. I want to invite you to pray a very simple prayer tonight. I know for me, that's when I pray. I find that all my worry and anxiety really kind of, kind of bombard me at night when I'm trying to rest and be at peace. You know, I, I have four wonderful children and life is chaos when they're awake and and when they're not awake, then it's, it's time to just love on the wife and see how she is doing. And then once all that's done, it's just resting time. And, and, and that's when I pray. But that's when the worry comes. That's when the anxiety comes. That's when the rush and weight of life hit me. And maybe that's true for you too. And if it's true for you, I want you to pray this, this very simple prayer. I just want you to say, God, Father, The stage is set. My weakness is on display. Show off. God, the stage is set. My weakness is on display. God, Father, show off. I don't know how God's going to do that for you. I don't. But I know he's eager. He's eager to show his power. I don't know what that looks like. 
maybe, maybe how God shows off in your life is he convinces you to take that stimulus check and give it to somebody else in need. To give it to a friend or family member who needs it more than you. Maybe how God shows off is he, he deepens your spiritual life. He gets you in this book. He gets you in prayer. He gets you on your knees. He, he, he gets you with folded hands on the ground saying, God, I need you. Father, I need you. Maybe how God shows off is he deepens your devotional life more than it's ever been before. Maybe he shows off and he, he, he does that by, by getting you to jump on board to the devotionals that we're putting out through our website or putting out through our social media as well. That you join that VBC Daily 3. You say, you know what? Now is going to be the time that God uses this to increase my intake of this and to increase my communication to him in prayer. Maybe that's how God shows off. Or maybe how God shows off is you finally have that spiritual conversation with your friend or family member who doesn't know the hope of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of your sins. Maybe that's what he does. You know, oftentimes we kind of have that same logic that the Corinthian church did. Hey, what's most convincing is, is power and might and spiritual to spectacular things. I, I, I don't think that's always true. I think if you want to know the genuineness of somebody's faith, it's not seen when they prosper, but when they suffer. When you're in pain, yet you're strong. When you're in crisis, and yet you're grounded. When it's chaotic, yet you have peace. That's persuasive. And maybe that's how God shows off. As your friends and your family members see peace in you, hope in you, maybe even as you have this disease, as you have this virus, maybe they see your hope in Christ Jesus and they see God showing off his strength. You know, maybe God shows off and just getting you to pause your life for a moment to stop your life for a moment and to ask the question, what's after all of this? Maybe God is clearing your calendar right now, using this to get you to stop and say, what's after all this? To get you to consider eternity, to get you to consider his son, Jesus Christ. I hope and I pray that that's true. I hope you use this season right now to ask yourself, is God real and who is this Jesus Christ? So maybe God shows off in this way, by pausing your life and introducing himself to you for the first time. And maybe the way you respond to that is by just visiting us one more time. As we celebrate Easter and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, how this one remarkable historical figure changed the world. Maybe it's time to stop and say, why? Who is this man? If you give us one more visit, just one more, just one more time joining with us, celebrating with us, seeing this remarkable character, Jesus Christ, I think what you're going to find is that the reason this 
historical man changed the world was because he wasn't just a man. He was the God man. I think if you join us again, you're not going to be disappointed. The more you look at Jesus, I'm convinced the more you're going to fall in love with him. Will you pray with me? Father, we are so incredibly thankful that you don't waste our hurt. Not a single hurt. What victory. God, what power, what confidence, what, what strength, what just dynamic changes in our life. Our entire posture is different, knowing there's nothing that can be thrown at us. No weapon formed against us that can stand. That even though we are struck, bruised, beaten, ridiculed, God, you, Father, you use it for our good and for your glory. We know you didn't create this world to have all this hurt, but you are using all this hurt for your glory. Father, give us that wonderful hope. And Father, for those that are listening, maybe this is their first time or maybe they've been with us a couple times and and they're on the fence right now and they're, they're starting to consider spiritual things. And Father, I just pray you continue to speak to them. My words can only go so far. Father, it's your words who could pierce our hearts, speak to our souls. So Father, I pray that you do that. I pray that they would see who Jesus Christ is. They would see your son on full display. The answer to our sin problem, his death and resurrection, the payment for our sin, to be received by faith. Father, draw them to you. I pray, God. I pray. Father, I pray that they would give us one more chance to talk to them, that they would join us on Easter to hear about the resurrected Jesus Christ. Christ, it's in your name we pray. Amen. Again, I want to thank you for joining us. I look forward to seeing you again on Easter. Thank you for, for being with us on this platform. We can't wait to see you again, and we can't wait to see you one day in person. Thank you.